Well, if you are new to our series, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, today and how today is the most important day of our lives because today is all we have. Yesterday can't be changed. Tomorrow, we can't count on it. Uh, Today is all we have. Uh, But this week, which is the next to last week of this series, so next week we're closing this series out and would love for you to be here for that. But this week, I want us to take a look at a story that many of us have heard and known since childhood. And growing up, uh, we thought that it was a story that was tailor-made for kids because that's the way the Sunday school teacher made it sound. But then as we grew up and, you know, we got into high school and we got into college and then, you know, full-fledged adulthood, uh, we realized that this story that we remember from childhood, it didn't show up in adult church very much. So we went back and reread it and maybe you had the same experience that I did with this story. Uh, you realized all over again, oh no, this is not tailor-made for children. This is actually a story that's tailor-made for adults as well. Uh, it's a story that has something for everybody. So if you're a Jesus follower, there's certainly something in there for you. If you're not a Jesus follower, there's something in there for you. If you, if you consider your faith to be strong, there's something in there for you. If you're struggling with your faith, there's something in there for you. So it doesn't really matter where you fall along the spectrum of your faith journey. There's something in this story for everybody. And specific to this series, today's story is gonna highlight the fact that our lives can change in a single day. Uh, Sometimes it does take a lifetime to see life change, but sometimes a life can change in a single day. And and today's story is gonna show us the consequences of taking a small step of faith today that taking a small step of faith today can be a big thing. It can have big consequences. Uh, Many of us, we grew up in a church world and we were exposed to some Christians, you know, saw a Christian movie, read a Christian book, and it seemed like Christians were always just really uh, interested in taking the big step of faith or, you know, just jumping off into faith or taking a step into the dark, you know, and all of those exciting things. And there's a time and a place for all of that. And I'm not knocking that, but I'm talking about a small, step of faith today. And and this is what we're going to learn, that taking a simple step of faith today can change the rest of your days. Taking a simple step of faith today, whatever that simple step of faith may be for you, because everybody here, everybody that's watching, starting from here all the way to the back and all the way to where you're watching from, everybody's got a single step of faith that they can make today. And today's all we've got. So if we're going to take a simple step of faith, it's got to happen Today, yesterday's over, we have no promise of tomorrow. So this story that we're gonna look at is found in the Gospel of Luke and it's found in chapter 19. And it's a story that's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or John. But this was a story that stuck out to Luke, who was a medical doctor who put together a biography of Jesus's life. He investigated everything about Jesus's life, talked to the eyewitnesses, and then he wrote down a logical, sequential uh, persuasion biography, uh, a persuasive paper about the life of Jesus to say, hey, this is who Jesus is, and this is who Jesus claimed to be, and he leaves us to make up our minds about what we think about Jesus. So it's part of Luke's gospel. It's intended to be read as a whole, but yet we sometimes read it in paragraphs. We read it in chapters. So what he's going to introduce us to has much to do with what came before it, and I'll try to help explain that. But this is where we pick up the story in Luke 19. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, What we learn in the verses and the chapters before this is that Jesus has been making his way down from the north and Jesus has been making his way close to the Jordan River and his ultimate destination is Jerusalem. 
but his last stop before he gets to Jerusalem is Jericho. And Jericho was located about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. Now in the first century when Luke wrote this and when Jesus was on the earth, in the first century, uh, Jericho had the nickname of being a little paradise. So if you wanted to see a little paradise, if you wanted to experience a little paradise, if you wanted to buy a little house in paradise, you know, if you wanted to work in paradise, then you tried to get to Jericho because it was known as little paradise. It was known for, you know, an abundance of balsam trees and Jericho had been made rich off the balsam tree because they would take the sap and they would market it and they would trade it. And it was just really an expensive thing to trade in those days. And, and there were all of these rose gardens that were just beautiful to look at. And then there were palm trees. So, I mean, everything that, you know, would make a place feel like paradise as far as natural beauty went, that was Jericho. And then on top of that, King Herod, uh, who had a desire to build things, he wanted to secure his legacy uh, through architecture and, and those types of things. King Herod decided that he would invest a lot of money in Jericho. And so he built a winter palace there. And, and there was all kinds of palace intrigue, assassinations that happened there at the winter palace of Herod in Jericho. And, and then beyond that, he also built a hippodrome and uh, he also built an amphitheater. So he brought culture and architecture to paradise. Uh, it was already paradise before, but Herod came along and he built it up and it was just really incredible. A uh, side note for uh, history lovers and for Valentine's Day uh, lovers as well, Mark Antony, uh, years before had gifted Jericho to his uh, beautiful lover, Cleopatra, and, and told her, uh, you're the only one uh, who can surpass its beauty. Uh, and then of course, they both died by suicide later on. So it wasn't a happy ever after. And, and by the time that we come back to this particular text, Jericho is under the control of the Romans. And so ultimately the Romans are in control with King Herod managing things there as the puppet king of Rome. So Jericho is a hot spot for trade. And this is all important to what we're reading because again, the scriptures are not meant to be read in little boxes or compartments. This is, this is an entire document and, and it's all important. And so to understand what's happening will help us get the most out of this story. So Jesus is passing through this area which had really become the playground for royals and the wealthy and the powerful. If you were aristocratic, if you were part of the extended royal family, then you, know, you weekend in Jericho, you had a vacation home in Jericho, you wintered in Jericho. And so this is where Jesus is at and he's passing through. He's not there for vacation. He's passing through and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time because he knows that the plot to kill him is in, already it's in full effect. But yet, even though he knows that in Jerusalem, a cross awaits him, it's like he's got steel in his spine, courage in his gut and love in his heart. He doesn't hide, he doesn't run away. He keeps on marching straight towards Jerusalem because he knows in Jerusalem he's gonna fulfill his purpose. And that is to die on a cross, bearing the sins of the world so that the world can know the gift of God's grace. So he knows what he's doing. He doesn't back down. It's really incredible. He's a man's man, he's tough as nails. And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, but he's heading through Jericho first. And as he heads into Jericho, his pop popularities through the roof. I mean, his approval ratings are as high as they've ever been. And as he comes into Jericho, he's got an entourage of a few hundred people. Uh, a few scholars, uh, they estimated that maybe even a couple of thousand of 
uh, people were following Jesus into Jericho. So you can try to get the, the mental idea that as maybe as much as 2,000 people are kind of rolling into Jericho. So this is like this big parade, this big entourage, and, and it's causing all kinds of commotion. The air is charged with expectation. The excitement is palpable. I mean, there's a fever pitch all around Jericho. And, and besides that, Jesus just healed a blind beggar on the outskirts of Jericho. So everybody is excited. This Jesus of Nazareth has come to town and there's all of these people with him. There's all this commotion. There's been a miracle and people just can't wait to see what Jesus does next. And that's when Luke brings us to the part of the story that he really wants to tell. And he says, there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. And so this is the guy that we remember, many of us from Sunday school. We colored pictures of Zacchaeus sitting up there in that sycamore tree. We sang songs about Zacchaeus. Remember, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I, I, I was offered money to sing it for you today, but I'm not gonna do that. I even, even this weekend, I worked on changing the melody and I, I, I put a little operatic aria note and flair to it, but I decided, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that to you. I love you too much. But you might remember the song. He was a wee little man, wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. All right, some of y'all went to the same church I went to. And so we sang songs about this and it seemed like such the perfect kid story. But there was so much that they didn't tell us when we were kids that, I understand why they didn't tell us because we weren't ready for it, but this is a story really for many of us adults because there's so much in it. Now, the first thing that Luke reminds us of is that not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector, but he is the chief tax collector. Like he is the Godfather. He is sitting up there at the top of this Ponzi pyramid scheme. He's got all of these tax collectors all around the region working for him. So he's taking a commission, he's taking a cut out of all the money that the tax collectors were collecting. Now, if you were a tax collector in the first century, it was a lucrative, it was a get rich kind of business, get rich fast, kind of business. Uh, if Rome wanted 20% in taxes, uh, you had the freedom to charge 35% in taxes. You give Rome 20, you keep your 15%. So you could extort the people. You, you could put a surcharge on top of it. As long as Rome got their cut, they didn't care what kind of cut you took. Besides that, you had the power to put people in prison. I mean, you had the power uh, of the legal law on your side. So, you know, if you were a tax collector, you made some jack, you made some jack fast. But if you were the chief tax collector, I mean, you were extremely wealthy. Now, a couple of things to think about. Zacchaeus was a regional tax collector. So he was like the guy. So there's a real possibility that once upon a time, Matthew, who was a tax collector, who'd become a follower of Jesus, that once upon a time, Matthew had worked for Zacchaeus. Uh, so he'd been, you know, Zacchaeus's guy in, in that part of Israel. And then all of a sudden, one day, Jesus walks up to Matthew at his tax collector's booth and said, hey, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And Matthew did just that and became part of the inner circle of Jesus's 12 disciples. So maybe Zacchaeus was formerly, you know, uh, Matthew's boss and, and Matthew formerly worked for Zacchaeus. We don't know, but there's probably a really good, really good chance of that. And then beyond that, tax collectors in the first century, they were considered the worst of sinners. Every tax collector was considered the worst of sinners. So you can only imagine if you were the chief tax collector. That means that you were the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of sinners. You were scum. You were trash. You were a traitor to both God and country. So someone like Zacchaeus, he was the object of public hatred. Now, Many of us, we, we've been hated by one, maybe two, maybe by a family, you know, we got misrepresented, there was a misunderstanding, but, but I doubt that very few of us understand what it's like to be the object of a community hatred. 
This guy was the object of a hatred of his community. Uh, he had been canceled. I mean, he was canceled by, by most everybody in Jericho. Anybody who would have known Zacchaeus, they would have canceled him long ago. Uh, in the first century, Jewish rabbis, they, they taught religiously from the time that children could, could learn to listen and, and write, they would teach children that tax collectors were beyond hope, that they were irredeemable. Uh, religious people were trained from the time that they were children not to be associated with tax collectors, not to talk to tax collectors, not to be seen with tax collectors, not to be friends with them, not to sit where they had you know, sat because you could, you could get their tax collector cooties on you and all of that, to just stay away from them. You, you were not allowed to do business with them. You, if you saw them walking down the street, you walked the other way. That's how, if you were a person of faith in the first century, that's how you were taught to think and to treat tax collectors for your entire life because they were the epitome of unclean, unholy, and unloved. Uh, tax collectors like Zacchaeus had been disowned by their family. Uh, they had been disowned by their faith. Uh, they had been disowned by their nation. Uh, you, just, you just didn't get around them. Uh, you, you saw them as part of the problem. And because they were part of the problem, they had sided with the political enemies of the day and the political enemy of the day in Israel was Rome. So, so you saw these as your political nemesis. These, these, these people were part of a system that, that was causing your life to be oppressed. This represented a group of people that, that was causing your life to be weighted down with taxation and, and to lack freedom and all of that. And so they were just, they were hated. And they also, they lived in the margins. You know, we use that term a lot, you know, the margins of society. Society. And basically what that refers to is, is when your lifestyle, when your sense of morality, when the way that you live your life, your values and your views, when they don't fit into the standards and the norms of the community at large, when you can't get in you know, lockstep with, with the herd, then you're left over here in the margins. And so that's certainly where Zacchaeus and tax collectors like him, that's where they live their life. They live their life over there in the margins of life. But yet, he was wealthy, he was successful, he was powerful. He rubbed shoulders with royals. He, he entertained dignitaries that had come in from Rome to check out Jericho and, and, and the trade routes that went through there. So this was a guy who was in the circle. He's connected, he, he's powerful, he's influential, he's privileged. But in the midst of all of that, it's as though something is missing in Zacchaeus's life. And this was the part that, that we really didn't talk about as children because what could we understand about something missing in life as children? But to Zacchaeus, he looks around and he's got everything that most people would think that a person could ever want. I mean, he's got that house and, and he's got the property and he's, he's got the money and he's got the connection and he's got the power and he's got the privilege and he's got the influence. And, and to look at him from afar, it's like this guy has absolutely everything, but for Zacchaeus, something felt like it was missing. There was something that just felt off and all the stuff and all the hobnobbing and all the connections and, and all the banqueting and, and all the politics and the willing and dealing and as exciting as that can be, it just didn't satisfy him ultimately. And it seemed as though something was missing in his life and he wanted to talk to Jesus. He thought maybe Jesus could help him answer the question of what is missing in my life. Why does my life feel empty? And maybe you understand that feeling. Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching, maybe, you know, to look at your life from afar, 
Maybe you understand that when people look at you, it seems as though you've got most everything that a person could want. I mean, you got a good job, you make a great living. And I mean, you look at your house, it's nice. And look at your cars, look at your kids, look at your wife or your husband. And I, I mean, from a distance, it, it looks as though, man, you got, you got a good life, you got a great life, but there's just something down there inside that just seems missing. And it doesn't matter how much stuff you try to cram into your life. And it doesn't matter how many exciting things you try to do. It only satisfies for a moment because there's, there's this void that's there. There's something missing. And if you know what that feels like, you know what Zacchaeus felt like. He was wrestling with this question, why does my life feel so empty? What's missing? And so it says that he, Zacchaeus, wanted to see Jesus because he was short though, he could not see over the crowd. Now, this is really interesting and it's so simple, but it says he wanted to see who Jesus was. And John Calvin about this particular passage said, this is how faith often begins. Faith often begins with simple curiosity. He's curious about Jesus. He has questions about Jesus. He wants to have more information about Jesus. He's heard things about Jesus. And, and perhaps he wants to know if it's true. He wants to know if those things were exaggerated. He wants to know if he was told correctly or if something was miscommunicated or if he misunderstood something. Maybe, just maybe, there's a good chance, I think, that Zacchaeus had probably been told about Matthew. I can imagine that one day somebody walks into Zacchaeus and says, uh, Zacchaeus, I, I got some news about our guy, you know, Matthew up the road a little bit, who's, who's manning the tax collecting booths up, up, you know, a few miles away. And, you know, well, what's Matthew? He's one of our best guys. What, what's up with him? Well, he's kind of just left. I mean, he, he just, he left his post. What do you mean he left his post? Why would anybody leave their post? Why would anybody leave this kind of job? And well, you know, we've heard about that rabbi guy from Nazareth, Jesus. He's, he's supposedly done some miracles. You know, he, he talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about God in a way that makes a lot of people uncomfortable in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden he walked by one day, looked at Matthew and said, Matthew, I know you're a tax collector, but I want you to follow me. And, and Matthew followed him. And he's been following Jesus ever since. And now he's like in his inner circle. He's one of like the 12 that's following Jesus all the time. And maybe Zacchaeus had been told about Matthew and it kind of made him scratch his head. And maybe he had heard Jesus's reputation that Jesus is a friend to sinners, a friend to sinners. And maybe he heard that Jesus was different than the religious establishment that Jesus was different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and, and the religious people that, that he had encountered for most all of his life. And this is a really big deal because Zacchaeus had heard some things about Jesus and it made him hopeful. It made him curious. It made him want to lean in and not lean away. It, it made him want to take a step in that direction, not run away in the other direction because this is a man that religion had barred from the temple. I mean, can you imagine? You're barred from the temple, you're barred from church, you're not even allowed to show up on the property. He'd been shunned by religious people for his entire life. He knew the sting of judgmental looks and judgmental whispers behind his back. He knew that. He'd been beaten up by religion, he'd been bruised by religion, he'd been left bloody and ready for death by religion. I mean, he just, he knew how toxic religion could be. But this is really important, and th this may be for some of you. He didn't allow his disappointing experience with religion and religious people to keep him from investigating Jesus. And so let me say a word to some of you. If once upon a time, some Jesus followers, once upon a time, some Christian people, once upon a time, some church people, you feel like judged you, judged you harshly, judged you wrong, mistreated you, stereotyped you, 
talked about you, embarrassed you. Perhaps you showed up to church one day and the preacher knew who you were and in his own way, he called you out. In his own way, he belittled you. In his own way, he made you feel like you, you didn't have any dignity or in some way you had lost humanity and, and you just knew how Christians were talking about you and about some of the things you were struggling with and about some of the things you'd done and about some of the things that were going on in your life. And, and you, just, you just, when you think of church people and Christian people, man, it, it's, it's some of the most painful. You get a little ticked off, you're a little hurt by it and you, it just makes you just wanna run in the other direction. Let me say something to you. And, and this is what you and I can learn from Zacchaeus. Don't allow unfortunate experience with Jesus followers. Don't allow unfortunate experiences with Jesus followers to keep you from Jesus. Because this is what they don't put in the new disciples class and this is what they typically don't put in the membership class at churches. Sooner or later, and you probably already have, sooner or later though, you will have an unfortunate experience with a Jesus follower. Because Jesus followers are human and Jesus followers fail, and Jesus followers sin, and Jesus followers, we mess up. And sometimes we don't get everything right. And that's the reason we're not called to put our hope in Jesus followers. We're called to put our hope in Jesus. We're not called to place our faith in Jesus followers. We're called to put our faith in Jesus. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus never disappoints. Jesus never lets you down. You put your faith in me, I will, I promise you, I will let you down. You put your faith and hope in somebody else, I promise you sooner or later they will let you down. But if you've had a bad experience with church, if you've had a bad experience with Christians, if you've had a bad experience with Jesus followers once upon a time, don't allow unfortunate experiences with Jesus followers to keep you from Jesus. There is a difference between Jesus and his followers. Jesus is Jesus, we are not. And so he continued to take a step in the direction of Jesus though religion had been toxic towards him. It says that he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, we little man was he, he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now, this is another thing that they didn't talk about in you know, children's church and Sunday school. And there's a real interesting thing going on in the original language here. It's as if Luke is insinuating that the crowd is actively trying to keep Zacchaeus from getting close to Jesus. That they are forming a wall to keep him from Jesus. Maybe they were thinking that they were doing Jesus a favor because this scumbag doesn't need to be anywhere close to Jesus. And why would somebody like Jesus wanna even have to deal with somebody like this? So let's kind of work as Jesus's, you know, kind of posse, let's work as Jesus's bodyguards and let's keep this guy back. And there seems to be this idea that the crowd didn't think that somebody like Zacchaeus should even have any kind of access to Jesus. And they're actively trying to keep Zacchaeus away from Jesus. Jesus, and that's interesting, and that brings a whole other level of drama to the story, but on the other side of that at the same time, a man like Zacchaeus typically always stands where he wants to stand. He always usually has the best seat. He's invited to the box. I mean, he's wealthy, he's privileged, he's connected. He's, he's Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, so it's like he could be at the front of the line if he wanted to, but there's something that's keeping him back as well. And so the crowd's working against him. He's working against himself. He, he, for some reason, he just doesn't feel comfortable to go be up front where in, in normal settings, that's where he would be to welcome a dignitary or to, to welcome somebody important coming to town. But, but no, he's back there in the background. He, he's curious, he's trying to take a step, but, but something won't let him fully commit. And it says, so he ran and 
dignified men in those days didn't run. He ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And that's embarrassing too, because a grown man running, well, that's not dignified. And a grown man climbing a tree, well, you know, to wear what they wore in those days and climb a tree, that's just dangerous. And that's inviting a scandal. And, you know, you could just be walking your children down to get a glimpse of Jesus. Hey, oh, hey, hey, kids, don't look up. You know, it could have just went really bad. And so he's up there and it's an awkward moment. But because Jesus was coming that way, he wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. Now, this is how faith works. He's curious, and his curiosity develops into questions, and his questions desire answers. And so what does he do? He tries to put himself in a position, not the best position, but he he positions himself to get more information. That's how faith works. Faith begins with curiosity. So if you're not even curious, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deal breaker. Faith begins with curiosity and curiosity develops into questions and questions ultimately desire to be answered. And so then you put yourself in a position to try to gain information or gain evidence and then try to respond to it. And that's what Zacchaeus is doing. This is how faith develops. So if you're a person who doesn't claim faith and you're curious about faith, and now your curiosity is turning into questions and your questions want answers. Then the thing has to be that you have to position yourself in the right place with the right people to ask the right questions and try to get the most accurate information and respond to it. That's how faith works. So despite his standing and despite bringing, you know, embarrassing attention to his stature, he puts himself out there a bit and he climbs a tree because he wants to get a glimpse at Jesus. And so Jesus with all of his hundreds of people are coming into town and getting closer and closer and closer. And then Jesus does the most unexpected thing. Not so much to us because we've, we've read the gospels or hopefully we have, or we've heard enough about Jesus's life. You know, this won't surprise us, but to the people in real time, when this happened, this was unthinkable and it was offensive. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must, I must stay at your house today, today. And everybody who watched this happen, kind of just watched with their mouths open. Because not only did Jesus have the audacity to talk to Zacchaeus, (laughs) Jesus invited himself over for dinner. And it's almost like Jesus is saying without words, he's looking at Zacchaeus, he invites himself over. It's like, you know, it's like Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you're playing this game and you think you're trying to, to draw close to me, but Zacchaeus, I want you to know It's me who's drawing close to you. You're the reason I've come to Jericho. And this, I must come to your house, is the same verbiage that you're gonna find in the Gospel of John chapter four, when Jesus said to his disciples, I must go through Samaria. You know, insinuating a divine necessity or a divine mission. Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, God has sent me to Jericho to come to your house for dinner. I've got to come there. And Zacchaeus, it's like his ears are ringing and he's thinking to himself, did he, just, did he just say he's coming over to my house for dinner? I mean, I don't have real friends. The only friends that I have are people who pretend to be my friends because they know my money and they know about my connections and we all just kind of scratch my back, scratch your back type of thing. I don't have real friends. People don't invite themselves over unless there's something in it for them. Did he just invite himself over? And he's thinking to himself, Jesus, do you know who I am? Do you know what I do? Do you know what I've done? 
And this is really good for us Jesus followers and for us church people and, and for those of us, we love what's right and, and we do our best to hate what's wrong in a good balance and, and we believe that there is a right and there is a wrong. This is really important. This is what we can learn about this moment. Jesus never allowed sin to keep him from sinners. Jesus never allowed sin to keep him from sinners. He had never allowed the sin that people were sinning to keep him from the sinners who were sinning. He, he just didn't allow it. He never kept sin as an excuse to say, well, I'm not gonna draw near to them. I'm not, I'm not gonna go talk to them. I'm not gonna go build a relationship with them. I'm not gonna have dinner with them. I'm not gonna have coffee with them. Jesus didn't allow sin to keep him from sinners. And I think that's just good advice for the local church in the 21st century. I think that's just good advice for all of us who say we believe that God has given us a purpose. And our purpose is to love God, love people, and make disciples. And if God has a heart for those people who are far from him, the church should have a heart for the people who are far from God. And the thing that we have to resolve to do as individuals and as a church to not let sin keep us from sinners. And I'm not talking about, you know, sinners in a derogatory sense, we're all sinners. I'm talking about sinners in the sense of far from God, not place their faith in Jesus. We shouldn't allow sin to keep us from sinners because many of us, we grew up in church and it was kind of like we were taught you know, there's certain people you don't get around, you know, you just don't get in that circle. You just don't talk to those type of people because they're gonna suck you in, they're gonna pull you down and, and then you're gonna be like them. And so, you know, we thought the goal of the Christian life was to stay away from sinners, even though we were sinners and we went to church with sinners and we knew about the sin everybody else at church was sinning. But when it came to the sinners out there, we just, we just weren't supposed to, to do that and go there. But Jesus, he teaches us a better way. And it says, Zacchaeus, it says, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I mean, he's excited. I mean, this is a big day for him. Jesus didn't judge Zacchaeus. He honored him. He said, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And, and Philip Yancey, I, I love what he writes about this. He says that in this interaction, that Jesus is surfacing a need in Zacchaeus's life that only Jesus himself can feel. Zacchaeus doesn't know what all's going on. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. But this whole thing for everybody else is unthinkable. For somebody like Jesus to be with somebody like this, this was scandal. This, this, this would have been on Facebook and Twitter and a picture would have been attached to it immediately. Hashtag compromise. Hashtag Jesus fell. What's he thinking? You know, I thought Jesus was stronger than this. I thought, I thought Jesus stood for what's right. I thought Jesus, and what's he doing with this person? And it said, all the people in the crowd saw this and began to mutter. That's a great word, mutter. They began to mutter, saying he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. It, it just, it didn't make sense to them how somebody who talked so much about God and somebody who preached so much about the kingdom of heaven and, and somebody who lived like Jesus, that he would be with somebody who lived like Zacchaeus. Because in their mind, to accept Zacchaeus, to, to go to his house was accepting him. And, and to accept him was to applaud his lifestyle. It was to applaud all of his choices. In the people's mind, to associate with Zacchaeus was in some way to participate in his guilt. But Jesus didn't subscribe to that petty type of thinking, that small type of thinking. Jesus, he, he didn't accept that paradigm because Jesus believed that you could accept and love someone without applauding their lifestyle or their choices. 
that you could be associated with someone as their friend and it not be an endorsement for everything they think and everything that they do. And so the people, you know, I can imagine, I, I mean, I'm sure you can too. We, we, we know exactly how some of them would have responded. And they're thinking of all the people and of all the places that he's gonna go, he's gonna go to Zacchaeus's house, that guy, this guy who, he, he doesn't care how he lives, he's a tax collector for goodness sakes. Does he know half the things that this guy's guilty of, but yet he's gonna go there? And the people are thinking, it's like the last gets to be first here. And I imagine Jesus kind of chuckled and smirked as he heard the thoughts and the words of people that day thinking that's exactly how the kingdom of God is. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. You know who gets bothered by the last being first? Those who were first in line. Those who were at the front of the line. Those who had got there early, worked hard. Those, those who, you know, they, they lived by the rules and what they were taught, that's what they lived by. They dot the I, they cross the T, they, they don't fall into the mud. They may step off path a little bit, but they don't get too dirty. And they're there, they're at the top of the line. I mean, they, they, they've lived life good and they've lived life hard and, and they've, they've tried their best. And then all of a sudden, some loser from the back of the line gets invited to the front of the line. And they're thinking, what the heck, Jesus? It's like you're letting the last be first and what, you want me to go to the back of the line? And so everybody, this upset the, the, what seems like the natural order of things. But what they're doing, people did all throughout the gospels. And all throughout the gospels, we see this, wherever there is grace for the unrighteous, there will be the grumbling of the self-righteous. It's just the way it was. When he called Matthew, it happened. In Luke chapter 18, or Luke chapter 15, rather, when Jesus, you know, had a bunch of tax collectors and sinners listening to him teach, there was a group of religious people who began to mutter. Happens in churches. When a church gets serious and says, everybody's welcome here. Lots of churches say that, but they don't mean it. Uh, they find out they don't mean it when everybody starts coming. And then it's like, oh no, we didn't mean, ah, this is getting a little you know, complicated. But when a church says everybody is loved by God and everybody's welcomed here and anybody can come. And when a church means it, listen, there will always be grumbling. There will always be grumbling. Let me tell you who always does the grumbling, the self-righteous. Because the self-righteous secretly believe they're better and that there's no place for people like X, Y, or Z. And so this happened then, it happens now. And so they go there and they're having dinner, they have lunch, you know, we don't even know how long it lasted. But in the midst of the conversation, Luke kind of gives us the highlights and it says, but Zacchaeus, he stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Now you say, well, what's going on here? This is the fruit of Zacchaeus' faith. This is not a bargaining chip. This is not Zacchaeus saying, okay, God, this is what I'm willing to do if you'll accept me. This is what I'm willing to do if you'll love me. This is what I'm willing to do if you'll let me in your family. This is not a bargaining chip at all. This is Zacchaeus saying, okay, 
I'm in. I want to follow you, Jesus. I'm placing my faith in you. I, I want to live by your views. I want to live by your values. And I want to live my life the way you teach your followers to live life. And the things that I've done wrong, I want to make right when it's within my power to do it. And he even, he even offers to do it more than the law required. This is not him trying to get God to love him or accept him. This is his response to the fact that he had already been accepted and loved by God. This is his faith producing fruit. This is, this is John the Baptist sermon earlier in the gospel of Luke when he says, hey, just don't talk about repentance. Just don't sign a card and say, hey, I repented. He says, why don't you go out there and produce fruit? that proves your repentance. And this is what Zacchaeus is doing. He says, this is the fruit of my faith. I'm in, count me in. This is what I'm willing to do. And that's what we see happening here. And so Jesus, uh, I believe there's some length of time in between this verse and the next verse because Jesus is not only talking to Zacchaeus in this particular verse, but he's talking uh, where the whole crowd can hear him because the whole crowd's very interested in this whole thing. Jesus says, today, Today, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. And then he says, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Everything had changed in a single day for Zacchaeus because he took some small steps of faith. He was curious. He had questions. He tried to get close enough to get information. He made himself available. And then he responded to it. And he placed his faith in Jesus. Maybe Zacchaeus had some questions. Jesus, is it really true that you are a friend of sinners? Is it really true that you've dined in the house of prostitutes and tax collectors? Is it really true? Is it really true these things that you say about God, that he's a father? of how he feels about us, and is all of that true? And whatever the conversation was, at the end of it, he placed his faith in Jesus, and Jesus said, today, your sins are forgiven. Today, you have become a child of God. Today, your sins have been taken away. Today, your eternity has been secured, Zacchaeus. Your life has changed. Today is gonna change the rest of your days. And he says to the crowd, this guy, he's the son of Abraham. And that's just another way you can jot it down if you're a note taker. Uh, Romans 4.11, Galatians 3.7, Paul said, the sons and daughters of Abraham are people who've placed their faith in God. Those are the, two, the true children of Abraham. It's the people who've placed their faith in God. So Zacchaeus believed that Jesus was his savior and he hung all of his belief on that idea. And then Jesus says one more thing to the crowd to try to help them make sense of everything. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's like Jesus said, if you wanna know more about me, if you wanna understand what this is all about, if you wanna understand why I do what I do, if you wanna understand why I went to Zacchaeus and went to his house, if you wanna understand my purpose, if you wanna understand my passion, if you wanna understand my obsession, this is it. I came for the lost, not the found. I came for the sick, not the healthy. I didn't come for the people who think they've got their life all neatly tied up with a nice bow on top of it and they think they've got everything together, that they think, you know, hey, they're okay, they're all good. I, I didn't come for those people. I came for the people, they know their life is messed up. They know they're broken. They, they know that life is empty, that something's missing. That's who I came for. I came for the lost. This is who I am. This is what I do. And Jesus saying this to the crowd and Jesus saying this to us, it gives us a really important clue as to how God sees people who are far from God. 
because Jesus's adjective was, these people are lost. That was his adjective. We like adjectives like good and bad, good and evil, clean and unclean, holy and godless, reprobate. You know, we love all of those terms. But when Jesus thought about those far from God, he said, they're lost. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been lost? You ever been in the woods? Have you ever been hunting? Have you been out there, you know, in the water, maybe ocean, you know, somewhere and you kind of lost your bearings and you just kind of lost any ability to be able to, to get your way back. If you've ever been truly lost, you know how hopeless and helpless it feels. You know just how scary it feels. And Jesus said, that's what it's like for the people who are far from God. They're just lost. They've wandered so far away from God. No wonder they think the way they think. No wonder they live the way they live. They've wandered so far away from God, they've lost their true north and they're just wandering through life and they can't find their way back. They're lost. That's how God sees people who are far from him. He doesn't see them as an enemy to defeat. He doesn't see them as a problem to eradicate or a, a nuisance to deal with. That's why Jesus offered compassion for the lost. He said, these are sheep without a shepherd. These are people navigating life without a true north. They don't have a compass. They don't have an anchor. They're drifting further and further out. These people are lost. They need help. They need to be found. He didn't get angry at lost things. He says, I've come to seek and to save lost things. So for those of us who follow Jesus, let me just ask a serious question here for a moment. Do you think about those far from God the same way Jesus did? Do I? Or are we caught into the, to the language of the day? Oh, the problem, the news, the, you know, they're the nuisance of the day. They're, they're, the, they're the toxic problem of the day. They're, they're a cancer on society, you know, whatever it is. Do we think about people who are far from God the way that Jesus thought about the people who are far from God? I'll tell you what bothers me, it concerns me. It concerns me with the amount of Christians I see these days who are seemingly getting more and more excited about judgment day. I just, why I can't tell you, I can't wait until Jesus comes back and just gives them what they've got coming. Really? I'm hearing a lot of Christians talk about the fact that they seem excited about some people going to hell. Certain people going to hell. And I'm thinking, when has that ever been the heartbeat of the church? When has that ever been the heartbeat of God? When for one single solitary moment can you find Jesus getting excited about the eternal damnation of anyone? How far have we wandered from the heart of God himself when we kind of get, get excited, kind of get itching for the day when he comes back and gives some people what they got coming? Because they're the problem. They got it coming. They deserve this. And I'm troubled by that. I'm troubled by that mentality among Christians. Those far from God broke God's heart. He said they're lost and they need to be found. So Jesus didn't pick a fight with them. Jesus didn't call them out and castigate them in public. He didn't cast them as the enemy to defeat. No, he said, I'm here to seek and to save the lost. And what was true of Jesus should be true of the church. If Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost, if that was his heartbeat, if that was his obsession, if that's who he was and what he did, that's who we should be as the local church. There's nothing that matters more than seeking and saving those which are lost, wandering aimlessly, hopelessly. 
Not that we get angry. Why would we be angry? So I can't believe anybody would think that way. Well, of course people will think what they will think and do what they will do when they're lost. Why are we spending our energy being angry when we ought to spend our energy seeking and saving the lost? Second question, this is where we end it. Have you ever lost something of great value? Keys, your phone, a kid. I lost a kid one time. Don't worry, we found him. But we were in a department store and I told him, don't move. You know what? He moved. I had him shut down the store. Uh, it went from, oh, he's not, he's not lost, he's not lost, to that moment as a parent when it, you know, it clicks over to being real. It's like, oh my God, he's lost. And I looked at the lady, I said, shut it down. I know you have a protocol, shut it down. Shut it down now, get on the phone, shut it down. <laughs> and I was running around, I didn't care how ridiculous I looked. I was yelling, I didn't care how ridiculous I sounded because the only thing that mattered to me was finding the son that was lost. I didn't care about the rules he'd broken. I didn't care that he disobeyed me. The only thing that I wanted was to find my son. And when I did, <laughs> I was thankful to God. I hugged him and I said, I don't have to call your mom and tell her I've lost a kid. Thank you, Jesus. What if it's true? That's how God has felt about every one of us. And it's how God still feels about those who are lost. Jesus told three stories. He said, I want you to know how God feels about lost things. There was a shepherd, had 100 sheep, had 99 but lost one. He risked all to go find the one that was lost. There was a woman who had nine coins and she lost one but all she could think about was the one lost coin so she tore up the whole house until she found the coin and she rejoiced. There was a father who lost a son who wandered far from home. And all he could think about was his son who was lost. And when that son came home, he welcomed him with open arms. Jesus said, if you ever wanna know how your heavenly father feels about you, that's how your heavenly father feels about you because God's heart leans towards the lost. Jesus said, that's why I've come. I've come to seek after, to chase after, to pursue, to hunt those which are lost. And if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus says, I'm coming after you. I'm hot on your trail. And I'm not coming to condemn you. I'm not coming to correct you. I'm not coming to teach you a lesson. I'm coming to find you, to forgive you, to offer you a life that is better and eternal. It's a love that is so undeserved. It is a love that is unconditional. And as the apostle Paul would say, if you ever wanna know how God feels about you, then just look to the cross because there God demonstrated his love for you that while we were sinners, he died for us. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than one who will lay down his life for somebody else. And Jesus said, if you ever wanna know how I feel about you, then just look to the cross. That's how far God's love will go. There's no length that God's love will not go to win you back to invite you back, to find you, to welcome you back into the family of God. So for those of you who feel like you've gone too far, God says, I love you.
For those of you who think that your sin is too great, God says, I love you. For the worst moments of life that you can't love yourself over, God says, I love you. For the thing that you can't forgive yourself for, God says, I love you and I'll forgive you. Through all the wonderings and the missteps and all the calculated bad decisions, I've loved you every step of the way and I'm gonna love you every step of the way because I want you to come back home. I want you to come back. And I want you to know that today, today, and I want you to hear God say this into your heart, that today, despite yesterday and despite whatever tomorrow may hold, today, he has never loved you more. And today he has never loved you less. He has loved you from the very dawn of creation and he will love you to the very end and there's nothing you can do to make him stop loving you. And he says, just come on back. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment, if nothing else, that there would be a new sense of confidence in every heart and every soul of your fierce and ferocious, unchanging, unconditional love for us. God, sometimes we say we believe it, but we don't feel it. We don't feel loved by you, but God, I pray that in this moment that you will, you'll break through the walls, you'll, you'll break through all of that junk. And in this moment, the love of God for us will become real, more real than it ever has in our life to know that you've never stopped loving us. You've never given up on us, not for a single moment. And when we've walked away from you, you've always walking, walked towards us. So God, I pray, just help us to sit in this moment. Help us to turn our eyes towards the cross, to be reminded about how you feel about us. There where you proved your love for us. So God, do that in this moment for each person, I pray in Jesus' name.